All you all ready for the new year? Yes, no? Of course we are, Pastor. Let it throw what it wants at us. We have Jesus. We know that Jesus is on the throne. What have we got to worry about? We are going to um, link up chapter 10 with chapter 11 this morning. We're doing a series on the book of Acts. So take a Bible, look at the book of Acts. Scripture reading was from chapter 11, so we're going to deal with verses 1 through 18 today. 18 verses in 30 minutes, we should be able to do that, don't you think? But I am going to have to do a little bit of recapitulation so you can remember a little bit of what we covered in chapter 10. As we're opening the Word of God, let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious God, All the way through the book of Acts, it mentions the importance of your Holy Spirit. So we invoke his presence to be with us this morning, to help us to make sense of what is being said through this sermon, and help us to see the importance. What is is laying on your heart, Lord, for this congregation is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 11, and also look at the end of chapter 10. I don't know how you could have a more wonderful situation than having this Gentile family, husband, wife, children, servants, don't know how many there were, 20, 30 people maybe. And the promise is coming to this man, Cornelius, that your family will be saved. But we're going to do it through this man, Peter. Peter, meanwhile, is having his visions from God. And this is the big sheet that is let down with all of these uh, ugly-looking animals and beasts and insects and unclean animals on that sheet. How many times did that happen with the sheep? Three. Don't you think it's important if something is emphasized three times by God? Obviously very, very important. And then to think, as Luke is gathering his material together, we have this long section in chapter 10 telling us about the vision and this conversion of this family, and then we have it it somewhat repeated in chapter 11. So not only do we have the importance of the three sheets, but we also have the importance of re-emphasizing something in chapter 11. There must have been many wonderful things to include in your book about what God did through the early church. This is of supreme importance. And of course, if we look at the end of chapter 10, for example, we see in chapter 4, in verse 44, that the Holy Spirit fell on them. Is that the work of God or man? This is God in action. Yes, he uses human beings like Peter, could use angels, for example. Often that is the case in this book. But it is God at work. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, this is Peter and 
the gentleman that accompanied him, apparently that was six men, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. We expect this on the Jews, but now it's even on these Gentile dogs, these pagans, these uncircumcised, unclean, impure, impure people. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Praise is a clear sign of the work of the Holy Spirit. Tongues may or may not be. Have any of you been speaking in tongues lately? And of course, that's a God thing again. And then Peter says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? Well, who doesn't like a baptismal service? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. That is the main uh, criteria for figuring out if somebody is a Christian. Have they the Holy Spirit or not? And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, if you stay with someone for a few days, what are you going to do for those few days? The text doesn't tell us. One of the things you're probably going to do in a few days is sleep, right? What else would you do if you stayed with someone for a few days? Oh, Adventists, they know a lot about food, don't they? Eat. And this eating part was a big issue because eating with someone meant fellowship. And Jews do not fellowship with Gentiles. Jewish Christians do not fellowship with Gentiles. So let's be very clear what we're talking about this morning. We're talking of Jewish Christians. People who should know better. They don't eat. They don't fellowship. They might raise their eyebrows and say, well, isn't it wonderful that they've got saved? But then they wouldn't quite know what to do with that because, well, let's uh, allow them to be on the fringe of the church. And maybe one day we can convince them to, to get circumcised anyway. But as far as eating and fellowshipping... Well, that is pushing the boundaries too far. The problem is, when it's God pushing the boundaries, then we'd better be careful that we're not opposing God. So what does chapter 11 tell us? The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. Now, I'm not totally clear what that means, that they had received the Word of God, doesn't really seem to be a major problem in the first verse, does it? There's nothing to tell you whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. We assume it's a good thing. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, period of time had taken place, not sure how long, Weeks, months, between this incident with Cornelius and his family and Peter going up to Jerusalem, let me ask you a question. 
Because we're all curious about Peter. He's such an interesting character. Do you think Peter's dragging his feet a little bit as he goes up to Jerusalem? Does Peter know that he's going to get chewed out? Do some of us come to church dragging our feet? Because we know someone's going to get on our case? I hope not. That's no, no uh, way to grow a church. But Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcised believers criticized him. What a contrast to what we've just seen and heard and read about Peter and Cornelius. And they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men. That's bad enough. But then you ate with them. And every Jew knows that the likelihood of preparing that food and having the right food prepared in the right way is almost zero. Now, it's possible Cornelius, as he learned from Judaism, has brought some of these uh, health principles into his home. But I don't think anybody would assume that if it was true. And we don't know whether he did or whether he didn't. So they've heard something. These are apostles. These are brothers. These are circumcised believers. Something that's a separate group. We're not sure. But it's, it's a lot of criticism for Peter to shoulder. Now how do you react when you feel that you've been involved in something that was really, really good and negative criticism starts falling on you, how do you react? Do you get very defensive? Do you just say, hey, I'm Peter. Don't mess with me. You know what the Catholic Church thinks of me. I have the keys of the kingdom after all. I'm a strong fisherman. Well, Peter seemed to handle it pretty well, I think. For a man that puts his foot in it so often, looks to me like Peter handled this quite well. So what does he do? Well, the text says, he explained, he began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. So he's quite clinical factual here. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. So this is Peter's vision that we're talking about. And I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, Wild beasts, that is an addition, it's not mentioned in chapter 10. Reptiles and birds of the air. And then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. You do have a sense of humor, don't you? Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven 
again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told them to have no hesitation, or told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message through which you and your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Now let me ask you something. If God gives you a vision about something, and then God commands something, because it says there in verses 11 and 12, the Spirit told me, the Holy Spirit told me, and then you have this amazing preparation of the Spirit where He brings these two individuals together, um, not by accident, obviously, by providence. And then you have this divine action where the Holy Spirit comes on them. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know when something like that happens that God's in charge, right? And it really doesn't matter what man says, whether you've consulted with the apostles or not. If God says, you go to this Gentile home, you had better go. And let the chips fall where they may. Because those chips are going to fall, and they're now falling on Peter. And it's not a fun situation to be in. In fact, it's a horrible thing when you're working for God and you really feel that you're doing something right, and you know that God is, is leading you, and their brethren give you a hard time. I can wax eloquent on that, but this is being recorded. Well, it says there, I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you cannot, be, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God, not even get your little toe in the door unless you're baptized of the Holy Spirit and of water. And so if God gave them the same gift as He gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? What are these uh, critics thinking now? When it's put that way, what are you supposed to do? Well, if you heard Larry's translation, which was the New King James Version, it says they were silent. In this translation here, it says, when they heard this, they had no further objections. Which I think is a kind of nice way of saying it. I think Peter just shut him up. I think he did very well. And God obviously gave him the words he needed on this uh, difficult occasion. And criticism turns to praise. Wouldn't that be nice if all of our problems in the church turned from criticism 
to praise. So they said, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. God has granted the Gentiles, or even the Gentiles. One translation puts it this way. God can evidently grant even pagans the repentance that leads to life, which might be a more accurate, that's a new Jerusalem Bible. A lot of Bibles out there, isn't there? I like them all. I even like the Catholic Bibles and the Jehovah's Witness Bibles. I'll use any of them to get the job done. So what are some of the lessons that we can bring out from these, not just these 18 verses, but chapters 10 and chapter 11? Well, one of them, and I'm going to read this from John Stott, is on the unity of the church. I'm going to read the whole paragraph because I think it's got so many, so uh, it's expressed in such a, a good way. The fundamental emphasis of the Cornelius story is that since God does not make distinctions, really important point here, in this new society, the Christian community, we have no liberty to make them either. And yet, tragic as it is, the church has never learned irrevocably the truth of its own unity or of the equality of its members in Christ. Even Peter himself, despite this, this divine witness that he had received, later had a bad lapse in Antioch, and we studied that last quarter in Galatians, withdrew from fellowship with believing Gentiles and had to be publicly opposed by Peter. How would you feel if your pastor sat down with you one week and then snubbed you the next? And it's all to do with eating? and fellowshipping. Even then, the circumcision party continued their propaganda, and the Council of Jerusalem had to be called to settle the issue, and that's in Acts chapter 15, so we will study some of these issues in more depth later. Even after that, the same ugly sin of discrimination has kept reappearing in the church in the form of racism, color prejudice, nationalism, my country, right or wrong, rule Britannia, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, Britain never, never, never shall be slaves. I don't hear you singing. Tribalism in Africa, casteism in India. It's good to hear that Seventh-day Adventists have worked with the lowest of the low in places like India. Social and cultural snobbery. Remember in the book of James where he talks about giving the rich people special seats? Or sexism. Discrimination against whom? Women. All such discrimination is inexcusable even in non-Christian society. In the Christian community, it is both an obscenity because it is offensive to human dignity and a blasphemy because offensive is offensive to God 
who accepts without discrimination all who repent and believe. Like Peter, we have to learn that God does not show favoritism. So I think that's a very well-worded paragraph. Hits a lot of the issues on the head. Prejudice, discrimination, favoring some people to the exclusion of others, none of that should ever be tolerated in the Christian church. I heard about a black street sweeper who feels drawn by the Holy Spirit to become a Christian. And on his street sweeping rounds, he meets a pastor of a church and asks him if he can become a member of his church. Now, this church has a white-only membership. And so the pastor, a little bit hot under the collar, says he'll refer the man's request to his church board. But they didn't want a black member, and they tell the pastor so. So the pastor doesn't tell the street sweeper their answer, but he keeps deferring the black man's continual question for three or four months. Finally, the black man doesn't ask anymore. The pastor's curiosity gets the better of him, so plucking up his courage, he asks the black street sweeper why he doesn't ask anymore to become a member. And the man replies like this, I prayed to my God, and I asked him if I should become a member of your church but he replied, I have been refused membership in that church for 30 years. So why should you try? It makes the point, doesn't it? We haven't done very well in this area. I can tell you stories of Seventh-day Adventist hospitals years ago who have refused to take care of sick Seventh-day Adventist church people because they have the wrong skin color. And that person who's been refused um, attention dies from that situation. And probably just about all of you who have been Adventists long enough can think of your own situations where there have been some of these um, forms of discrimination, prejudice, or whatever it might be. This lesson, these chapters, this situation, which is a very, very crucial situation in the early Christian church. Are we going to have a Jewish church? Are we going to have a Gentile church? Are we going to have two churches? Or are we going to have one church? We still have black conferences in North America. And, of course, we have ways of justifying that. And I once uh, pastored a church in Oakland where we rented out our building to a, a Japanese-American church who targeted a very nice group of people, good group of Christians, non-Seventh-day Adventist Christians, and they targeted middle-class, upper-class Japanese Americans, mainly professional, and they were very successful in doing that. 
But ultimately, so I'm not, there are ways of justifying these things, but ultimately we all come to the same table together, or we don't. We need to learn these lessons while we're on planet Earth and not wait to learn them up in heaven. Well, some other lessons that we can learn from these verses are the gift of the Holy Spirit, the tremendous importance of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why some people want to call this book not Acts of the Apostles, but Acts of the Holy Spirit. He has His way of speaking, His way of revealing Himself. He has His way of taking control of the situation. And isn't this the longing of many in the Seventh-day Adventist church, that we clear away all the prejudice and the discrimination and the inequality in the church and let God be God. Let God's people move out, not favoring some and not favoring others. Something else that is very important here is that when the baptism of the Holy Spirit falls, you do not have instant maturity. Just think of who we're talking about now. We're talking about the apostles. We're talking about the leaders of the early Christian church, godly people that probably were willing to lay their lives down, and most of them did, for their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the prejudice, the discrimination within them was so deep-seated since they were little children, they've grown up with this attitude that some are better than others. That it took this mighty moving of the Holy Spirit over periods of time to change their thinking. Now, how long did that take? Well, I'm not sure. I would guess at least a decade, if not longer, some of them that were so tied to the ceremonial system probably couldn't break free from that until the temple was destroyed or until they were excommunicated from the temple. And yet, shouldn't every Christian know that all of these, these uh, sacrificial emphasis all meets its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ? So you can know something with your head, but to know it with your heart is very, very different. Peter himself. If anybody is going to get the point that God treats people equally, if anyone's going to get the point, it's going to be Peter, right? The visions, God speaking, angels, and all of these supernatural ways that God has told him. Don't you dare call anybody unclean or impure. Sorry, Lord, I won't do it anymore. It's not that easy. You go to a place like Antioch, you fellowship with the non-Jews, no problem, you've learned your lesson, God straightened you out, put a little bit of peer, peer pressure on the man, and he buckles. But eventually, I'm sure, he did learn the lesson. Hopefully, you and I have learned some of these lessons. Or if we haven't, 
than we need to. It's all part of Christian maturity, growing up, thinking the thoughts of God, knowing what is, is important, what's on the heart of God, and then trying to implement that in your life. Isn't that what holiness is? Holiness is being like God, not holiness by being distant from sinners. When you think of the lepers who would go around saying, unclean, 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 so nobody would accidentally touch them and be contaminated. How unfortunate if the church thinks that way to people who are not lepers, to people who are, have fallen into sin. Is it possible that we at the Anderson Church can keep ourselves in our little holy club, making sure we're not contaminated by anything? And what takes priority? Doesn't the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ being shared in the community, doesn't that take priority over everything else? Now, it's true, I'll agree, that we don't have this instant obedience as far as understanding goes. God, some people get it quick, and some people get it more slowly. I think we all could agree to that. But the point is, we had better get it sooner than later if God is going to have a church firing on all cylinders. There clearly was a reluctance, a strong reluctance on the part of Jewish Christians to share the gospel with Gentiles. Where did that reluctance come from? Is the reluctance because the Bible says that? Wasn't the whole purpose why God raised up the nation of Israel so that they would be that light, that lighthouse where the light of Yahweh is shining out into the world, where people can come and visit Solomon and other uh, David or whoever it might be under the nation and learn about the true God? It was always God's purpose that the nations would flock to Jerusalem. It was never God's purpose that Jerusalem or Judaism would keep that light on a bushel. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, may your light shine before men, he's emphasizing that because it was not shining as it should have shone. And I hope that's not the case with us. I would like people to be attracted to the Seventh-day Adventist church because we, through the way we behave and treat one another, they can see God. I don't think it's that effective that people are drawn to the Seventh-day Adventist church because we have 28 fundamental beliefs that are correct. Now, is it important to have correct doctrine? Obviously, 
from Genesis to Revelation, we can see how important that is. But even this morning when we were studying about the Godhead, we should be able to see how God gradually, gradually, gradually unfolded that doctrine over many centuries. Until Jesus Christ Himself came in the flesh. And then you get a whole new understanding of who God is. The emphasis of the Jews being the light for the world tells us that the scope of the gospel is universal. Never, ever was it intended for just a few people called Jews. There is no room for exclusion of anybody. And so when we see the discrimination and the prejudice that can be in the church of God, what are we to do? I sometimes wonder, as I read this passage, I've learned a lot from these verses that we're studying today, I sometimes wonder where the real pressure came from. Were those apostles and brothers that are mentioned there right at the beginning of the chapter, were they feeling the pressure from other Jewish people? They heard something, it says in the Scripture, but they didn't know the full story. Isn't that often the, where the problems come from? We've heard something, but we really don't know the full story. And so, instead of hearing something and reserving judgment, giving Peter the benefit of the doubt, shouldn't that, isn't that a good rule of thumb? Uriel does something. Shouldn't I, as his brother, give him the benefit of the doubt? If I know he's a godly Christian man, doesn't seem to me they give the benefit of the doubt to Peter. And so here we have human frailties getting in the way of this spreading of the gospel message. Let's examine our own hearts this morning. Let's make sure that our attitude is God's attitude to embrace all people. What happens when they come through the church doors, dance down the center aisle with their nose rings and their ankle bracelets and whatever else thing, uh, happens today uh, with, with many, many young people? What are we going to do when homosexuals are in our midst. Think of the vast variety of humanity that's out there. Are you and I big enough to be able to cut through that stuff and let God reach them, perhaps through your ministry and my ministry? It's somebody that's really in tune with God who can do that. And the rest of us, well, we look and criticize from a distance, and we really don't understand what the good news is all about in the first place. Let's pray. Gracious God, 
I thank you so much for chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Acts. I thank you that you used Peter, despite all of his mistakes in Antioch, you used Peter to be bold and innovative and to open up fresh fresh territory, fresh ground. We're seeing here the opening up of multi-millions of people responding to the good news of Jesus Christ. It starts with a few Gentiles, but eventually they would become the majority in the church. Lord, we know before Christ comes back, there will be a shaking in the Seventh-day Adventist church. There will be mighty godly revival in the Seventh-day Adventist church. There will be a sharing and a courage and a boldness that maybe is not so evident today. Lord, may we be part of that world. May we be on the cutting edge of reaching people for Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you you didn't discriminate against us, but you embraced us with arms of love. Help us to do the same to others is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.